Welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and today's show is going to be spectacular. I'm going to talk to Todd Robinson, aka the Speed Burner, about some NBA and some tennis. We'll get into Russell Westbrook being a fantasy beast, the Clippers, the Warriors, some Eastern Conference contenders. And we're going to talk tennis as well, see about the Andy Murray Novak Djokovic dynamic and what the returns of Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer will look like. And then I'm going to talk to Ryan Souls about the firing of Jeff Fisher, what the Patriots looked like on Monday night in their win against the Ravens, and we're going to count down the top 10 running backs of all time in the first edition of our top 10 list segment that I hope to do many times over. It's the Money Mitch Effect, and it starts right now. All right, now joining the show on the line, special guest, Todd Robinson. Todd Robinson, a.k.a. The Speedburn, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Hey, glad to be on the show and uh, talk a little sports with you. So, Todd, you have a website, Todd's Tennis Takes. You, you cover the sport of tennis. You're also a big basketball guy, and I brought you on for both of those reasons. But, you know, i, I got to ask first, and just for our listeners out there, the speed burner monitor. Sure. Where exactly did that come from? What's the genesis of that? <laughs> the genesis of the speed burner nickname was uh, post college. I played a lot of volleyball. I worked an early job where I was free in the afternoons on weekdays, and uh, lots of volleyball. And one of the older guys called me the speed burner as I was chasing down a ball. I'm not a big guy, but uh, I am a quick guy, So, uh, especially when I was in my 20s, and that's where the nickname came from, is chasing down balls pretty fast on the volleyball court okay. back in the early 90s. Okay, well, it makes sense. You know, you got a lot of energy, which is definitely a good thing, so glad you could clear that up, and we'll get into now the meat of the conversation. We'll start with the NBA, and as somebody that, Todd, you've been playing fantasy basketball longer than anybody I know. I want to start with Russell <laughs> Since Westbrook. Since the early 90s also, <laughs> yeah, yes. No. 1993 was my first year. Wow. Yeah, that's, in, that's insane. I want to start with Russell Westbrook. Since 1993, since you started playing fantasy basketball, have you seen anything quite like what Russell's doing? Averaging a triple-double, had a streak of just seven straight, been a stat and a fantasy monster. No, uh, and I, you, just, you just look at the history books, and there's been nothing in the last 24 years like this. He matched Jordan's streak of seven straight, but you had to go back to 89 for that. You know, last year and this year, and at the end of the, what was it, 2014-2015 season when he caught fire as well, racking up triple-doubles, that, that's what all this reminds me of is when Jordan took over the point for the Bulls in 1989. You know, he's got about that same kind of athleticism. You're just talking about three inches shorter, so the rebounds are all the more impressive. Yeah, I think that's insane. He's averaging just a shade under 11 rebounds a season. And we all expected when Durant left that he would have to pick up the load and, and be more of a force. But I don't know if anybody expected this. Though when I watched the Thunder play, well, I think Westbrook's, I would say, definitely a front runner for the MVP right now. But I'm still curious to see how this team is going to continue to gel. They haven't looked great at times. It's almost... And I don't know if you agree, but there's times when this Thunder team, Westbrook's doing all that he can do, but it's still not enough. I don't know if the talent level around him is going to be adequate enough for a serious playoff run. 
I definitely hear you on that because you, you look at the other names and, you know, you've got Oladipo, who's a nice, what, fourth-year guard now, and, and he's maybe not stepped it up as much as they kind of hope. You know, they've they got the young piece, Sabonis, in that uh, Ibaka trade. Cantor probably doesn't play the minutes that I thought he would off the bench. They love Steven Adams, and he's been pretty solid. Yeah, it's going to be Westy, and then who are the two maybe three guys on any given night that can help out enough. And um, he does so much that uh, that extra help doesn't need to be so huge. Just kind of fill in the, the gaps here and there. And um, we'll see We'll see what they can do, if they can hold, say, a, a four or five seed uh, all the way till April. It's going to be fun to watch the uh, expedition of Russell Westbrook and this Thunder team. It's been an interesting year, too, Todd, in terms of stats, in terms of some just great performances. And it's never been done before. In the history of the game, what happened in Los Angeles, what Chris Paul did against the Trailblazers, Todd, he had a game this weekend. I know you saw 20 points, 20 assists, zero turnovers. That last part is what stands out to me. It's it's unbelievable that, you know, we talk about all the great point guards. We talk about the Currys and the Westbrooks, and now Kyrie Irving are in that discussion. But around the league, Chris Paul has the most respect for how he runs the position. And I think that game, 20-20-0, and zero, just exemplifies all that he represents on the court. Well, that game, a line like that, 20-20-0, it, it really exemplifies polish. And, and that's really what Chris Paul has 10-plus years into his career. Is just There's so much polish on his game. He's just He knows what he wants to do. He knows the right move to make, the right pass to make. And he does it, I mean, you look at what Westbrook's doing, but he's turning the ball over like six times a game. It's over the top, the turnovers. Um, and you can't blame him, he's a different player than Paul, but, you know, Paul, his whole career, he's been very low on the turnovers, a very high assist guy, a scorer when you need him. He, he's, he's a consummate all-time, you know, point guard, and, um, you know, he's in the 2010 club, the 20 points, 10 dimes club, and you'd be surprised at how small that club is. Westy, Westbrook joined it last year, but it's a pretty small club. You know, there's a reason that Chris Paul is a mortal lock for the hall. Now, I don't know that um, he's going to take a ring to the hall, but yeah. he'll go to the hall one day. Yeah, and, you know, you touched on it, too. He's just a smart player. I think every coach would like a player like him to run their offense just watching him play, you understand that he, he knows the game so well. He, he's as crafty as a player. He does things that aren't going to show up on the stat sheet. And he's willing to defer to the hotter teammates when necessary. But, Todd, I'll ask you another point about this Clipper team. With the Warriors out in front, the Clippers have basically pushed all their chips to the table. Do you get the sense, like I do, that it's now or never for this team of suddenly aging superstars? Yes, because, you know, well, first of all, Chris Paul, he had elite quickness and was just, before 2010, 2009, got a few little injuries that slowed him down. You know, he was uh-huh. even more dynamic, which is all the more, makes what he's doing now all the more impressive. But yeah, you know, you, you got Blake, and Blake's an athletic-based game, and he's, what, 26 now, right. something a lot along those lines. Same with uh, DeAndre Jordan, so really kind of a stagnant roster. I don't know, last three or four years, they move a few pieces around those big three. And Redick, but Redick's so one-dimensional. He'll shoot 20-footers, he'll shoot three-pointers. There's not a whole lot else to his game. 
and there's really not a whole lot else to that roster. You know, if they don't do it now, yeah, it's, it's, I can't see them doing it in two years when Chris Paul's closer to 33. I, I think that would be um, a tough ask uh, for them. Right, you just get the sense of the way the league's going. There aren't too many traditional two big men lineups like what the Clippers throw out. I'm intrigued to see what, if the inevitable move happens, what exactly it is. Still talking with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch effect, and we need to talk about the Warriors, and it's always the case, the Golden State Warriors pace a lot of the NBA conversation around the country. But Todd, this is a team that if they had one weakness, you might say it might be the interior that five position, are they going to have rim protectors? Do you see this being a problem that could loom large You know, when the games really do start to matter? You know, will it be a problem? You know, they're not going to be a defensive powerhouse team, but then again, you do have that Swiss Army Knife power forward, Draymond Green, who can be such a defensive menace and, and do so many things, and Durant has some length at defense, but... They don't have a Bogut this year. They don't even have a Festus Ezeli this year, you know. So they kind of lost a lot when they put the money aside to make the big splash uh, KD signing. And you're just not going to have the uh, the bench surrounding a four superstar team because of the the money metrics of the of the game. So. You know, can they add a rim protector? Probably. What would they give up? What could they give up? There's just, they've got their big, really big five names. Then you've got Iguodala off the bench. I don't think they're really ready to move him unless it's for another real stalwart sixth man. So Mm. it's tough. I think this is their roster. Will they have problems with it? Um, Time will tell. Because there's not a lot of teams that can put a seven-footer who's good on the block and going to low-post score against you. So that's the caveat to maybe it's not going to be such a problem after all. Yeah, and I think looking at what they do, I mean, they can compensate for it. You mentioned Durant's length. They've been getting good minutes when they've played. David West as well has been pretty productive for that team. Draymond can go small at the five. You know, the X factor on this team, Todd, I don't know what to expect every time he plays, but that's JaVale McGee. I mean, you talk about just a complete wild card. Very interesting wild card. You know, I'm glad you reminded me. I kind of forgot about JaVale. But, you know, they've had a couple blowouts where he's gotten 10, 12, 15 minutes. And he still kind of puts up some numbers. So does he garner a bigger role by late February and March? He could come through for them. And he might give them some surprising playoff minutes. You never know. And um, and it'll be just a lot of fun to watch come springtime. Right, you never know if he's going to have a pretty good game or try to inbound the ball for the other team. You just you never know what you're going to expect <laughs> from JaVale McGee. But before we move on to the, the Eastern Conference, I want to get your brief thoughts, Todd, on the most maybe the most disappointing team right now in the Western Conference, given expectations. What do you think's wrong with the Minnesota Timberwolves, a team that so many people were high on, a lot of young talent? They won tonight beating the Bulls, but... What's really been the story here, the problem in Minneapolis? It's tough. I have not, I have been watching from afar and the box scores, and not only that, but, but seeing leads, leads, and then they've been notoriously awful in the third quarter this season. Obviously, the reason why you're mystified, I am, and a lot of NBA people are, is because there is a lot of talent on that team. It's athletic talent, it's young talent, 
Carl Anthony Towns just got a world of off-season hype and has, you know, really been more of a flat line this season numbers-wise. He's only three more points a game and he's three more shots a game. So that's just kind of right in line with a couple extra shots. And he's taken a lot of threes. And I don't agree with shoving everything at a young player, especially a big, right away and saying, hey, now take your game to the three-point line. Let them get comfortable doing what a big man should do, patrol the middle, grab boards, and score from in close where your height really helps you. You know, Rubio seems to be stagnant. His three-point shooting, I noticed, was way down compared, not that he's ever been great at it, but he's literally shooting under 22% from three this year. With a defensive-minded coach, i got to be honest, I'm kind of mystified myself because Levine has... Levine seems to have been the one guy this season who's taken the next step and has gone clearly up a level on his game and consistency and scoring and even filling in some assists and rebounds and helping out in that manner. So um, I'm mystified. But I'll tell you what, tonight I was having pizza with my son. The Minnesota game was on. They were down 26-6, to and there was over five minutes left in the first quarter, down 20. Then they were down 47-28, and they somehow came back and they won, I think, by three or four points tonight. It was five points, actually, 99-94. And that kind of a win with a young team, that can turn a ship around. So we'll see if this is a big a big point. Mark December 13th, and maybe that's the turnaround, coming back from 20 points down early. We'll have to. And, and I agree with you on Towns. You know, the Towns-Wiggins thing, I, I just don't know who the alpha dog is. I think that's part of the reason why they've been blowing some of these leads. They don't know or they don't have a guy that can just step up and take the game when it, winning shots when they need him to. I agree with you, too, on Rubio. I don't know if he's going to fit well in the Thibodeau system. I'm not liking, I know it's early, but I'm not liking the returns we've gotten so far. And he hasn't elevated his game, that's no, for sure. not at all. But Levine is going to be the guy that is going to grow. You can see he's getting better. He's adjusting to this new system. I think he's going to be a, a player in there in their future. This is a young team that's still a couple moves away. I think we, we fell on the hype train. We love to do this with young teams. Everything looks good. Let's just assume they're going to make the next step. You know, the NBA, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. Same with tennis, which we're going to hit on later in the show. But, you know, you step up and sometimes you plateau for a while and then you, you know, have that learning curve, little ramp up again. And it goes for quarterbacks, NBA, tennis, I mean, whatever the sport is. Um, it's not just a smooth, steady step upward every day. So we have to keep the big picture in mind sometimes, especially with young uh, young athletes. Absolutely do. We're still talking with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch Effect, and we're going to switch now to the Eastern Conference in the NBA, Todd, where it's the Cleveland Cavaliers, and it appears to be everybody else. There were some opinions uh, and some contrary opinions over who the number two team would be. But here it is, Toronto again. They still remain in that second position. In your opinion, Todd, is this Toronto team here to stay at the number two spot? I think so if you look at the East. I think the Knicks are an intriguing threat just because Porzingis, you talk about a guy who's not plateauing but stepping up his game. If they can get all their pistons firing, they could threaten Toronto. But Toronto's they're very confident. You know, Balanoasia's, I could never say that name very well. He's been in the league, what, five, six years now. Yeah. You know, Lowry's a vet. DeRozan's a seven-year vet or so. And they're very confident. They had a nice season last year. Outside of Cleveland, obviously, step above them. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody else is 
really ready to threaten them right now so heavily for the number two spot in the East. You know, I do agree that Toronto right now is the team. They're a confident team. And I would say about Kyle Lowry, let's start with him. I'm not going to compare his game, his resume, all that much to Chris Paul. But he has a lot of, as you said, that polished background. He's a smart guy, knows the position, doesn't have to rely on speed, and is very efficient in crunch time situations. DeMar DeRozan, you know, he just blows my mind, man. What he's able to do in a league that's gotten so three-point heavy, Todd, you know it following fantasy sports, how this guy can continually score when the three-point weapon is just not a part of his game. I love it, too, because I think the three-pointer has gotten a little too much hype. And the fact remains, it's a low-percentage shot. And, um, you know, DeRozan's reminding us that, hey, if you feel comfortable dribbling on the move and jumping and hitting a 17-foot floater, do it. I mean, Michael Jordan made a career of it. And, um, you know, I've, I've played a lot of volleyball in my time and tennis and stuff. But, like, there's some athletes, and I'm one of them, they're more comfortable on the move. It's more natural for them, and DeRozan's one of those guys. And I can... You know, I can relate, and I'm glad that he's having the success that he is sans the three-pointer because it reminds us that the three-pointer is not the be-all, end-all that maybe it's been given credit for the last couple of years. Right, it's refreshing, and I think the phrase is, you never go broke taking a profit. They're going to give DeRozan the mid-range shot, he's going to take it, he's going to score. I think he's somebody that his game just continued to blossom, even when people weren't sure what his ceiling is. He might not even be there yet. So we'll have to monitor that. There's three other teams, though, in the East. You mentioned one of them, the Knicks. I want to talk about the Knicks, the Bulls, and the Celtics. These were three teams, Todd, that tried to make splashes in the offseason. Some have worked out, some haven't. Do you think any or all, maybe, of these three teams can make a deep playoff push come April? I'll start with Boston because for the last few years, I've watched them and people praise the talent that they've assembled and you know, they've assembled a lot of picks and all, but I don't see the alpha kind of straight-A player like, this is our guy yeah. and he's going to be our man. I mean, you have an undersized backcourt. It's kind of dynamic with Isaiah Thomas and what he can accomplish at his, what, five foot ten, five foot nine inch height. Avery Bradley's an undersized off-guard who's grabbing like eight rebounds a game. It's freaky this year. But I don't see them as much more than what they are. Right now they're like 13 and 11 on the year, and that might pan out to like a uh, finish the season 12 games over 500 or so. And that's about what they are. I, I don't think, you know, Jay Crowder, they have so many nice players. They need to trade, I think, like two or three nice guys to get one animal beast. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I haven't looked closely at what trade scenario might work or what have you, but I just think, you know, they've got Marcus Smart. They really have a few kind of duplicate pieces that also for chemistry uh, reasons, I think they have to make a move to be more of a threat. Uh, so that's what I would say about the Celtics. I don't know about your thoughts about them. Yeah, just real quick. I think Horford, we expected more from him. He's been injured. But also, I'm with you. They need somebody probably on the wing or in their backcourt that's going to be that, that top, that alpha dog. And Isaiah Thomas is, is spectacular, yeah. but he's 5'9", um, and, and he's not going to get to the hoop, get the same looks that a bigger guy would have. But, you know, switching now to the other team you brought up, right. the Knicks, I am, I'm, I'm buying what they're selling more and more each day. Porzingis keeps getting better. 
one of your favorite things. He's got lateral movement for a guy that's over seven feet tall, seven two, seven three. But Derrick Rose hasn't looked that bad. He, he he might never, he probably never will get to that MVP level again. But he's still playing pretty well. No, he, he he's doing about actually tonight. Well, you know what? Tonight he played ten minutes, went zero of six, and that was it. Yeah. So it looks like he might have hurt himself tonight. No, no. So well, up until tonight, D Rose has been pretty solid, pretty healthy. You know, he's not D Rose of twenty ten, but he's maybe a little bit better than the D Rose we've seen the last eighteen, twenty four months. What's interesting is they have a backup big on that team, Kyle O'Quinn, who. In fantasy basketball a couple years ago, there was, ooh, this guy's kind of interesting. He kind of does some things. Kind of went quiet, went into hibernation in Orlando, and then um, resurfaced in New York, and guy had 22-14 and 14 tonight. So um, they have some pieces. They actually they look more interesting than the Celtics to me just because they have, like, an interesting mix, and they have a potential superstar with Porzy, and you've got a maybe a bit off of his prime declining, slightly declining Carmelo yeah. um, as well. So they, they are interesting. If they can get the, the silliness with Phil Jackson and a couple comments that hurts everybody's feelings, uh, <laughs> they can push that silliness aside, yeah. Yeah, they could be, and I, I, I did check. Rose left the game with back spasms. It's not knee or ACL related, and I'm, I'm happy for that because that might have been the worst lead-in question if he had torn his ACL tonight. And uh, I complimented him for right. playing well. Reshape our opinions on the next future this season. Glad he's uh, playing. Yeah. yeah, glad he's playing well. And the last team was the Bulls. I'm still not sure about this team. They've shown that they could win some big games, Todd. But that backcourt, Wade, Rondo, Ed Butler. I don't know that that the pieces are going to fit come playoff time. Yeah, you know, Wade has taken more threes and made a little bit more of them than people thought he would this year. And he's he's managed his declining athleticism. You know, he's now in his mid-30s. He'll turn, what, 35 in January. So, you know, he's managed his kind of twilight years of his career pretty nicely because he's, a, he's always been a savvy, smart player. And I think I read somewhere a week or so ago that they are a better team statistically when Rondo is out and Wade and Butler are on the floor together. And McDermott has been, he's one of their, they don't have a lot of long ball threats. Mm-hmm. Mirotic is not really, <laughs> he's kind of disaster. stepped back this year. Yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of been a, a mysterious disappointment. And McDermott has been injured a bit, uh, played tonight. Yeah, I would say less upside and, and less interesting than, say, the Knicks but maybe a bit better balance than the Celtics. So I just still, I still look at them as a funny hodgepodge of pieces. Yeah. Well, it's the Eastern um, Conference, so you, you never really know what you're going to get out of the East. So, hey, they could be in it. They could be a factor come playoff time. Before, before we get to the tennis section of this show, talking with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch Effect, as a fantasy guy, as a fantasy guru like yourself in basketball, I want to ask you about some other guys this year. Who, who are some other players? We mentioned Westbrook. We mentioned you know some of the more talented players on the Warriors. But who else have been some fantasy beasts this season? What trends have you noticed, if any, from this season? Well, action? Yeah, the, the trend I've noticed, um, besides the, the little man Westbrook uh, dominating with you know 30 points a game and triple-doubles, is, is at the other end of the spectrum, some of these tall guys, you know, in 1995, 
Kevin Garnett was drafted, and they didn't really know what to make of this super tall, super athletic, super energetic guy, and he ended up molding his game into, you know, a Hall of Fame uh, resume and, uh, you know, an amazing, like, wow, what a weapon at 6'11", and now, and you really kind of had a dearth. There wasn't another KG for a long time. And now you've got the Greek freak, and you've got Anthony Davis, and Porzingis is shockingly agile and coordinated. The guy pulls spin moves and dribbles and stuff, and is so smooth shooting from distance. So I, I see a league where it's it's becoming we need our freaky big guy who can kind of do it all. And I think I think that's maybe why Minnesota got a little antsy pushing Carl Anthony Towns into taking threes because everyone wants their bigs now to do everything all at once, whereas Porzingis, that kind of was his natural game and, and kind of who he was as a basketball player. As a matter of fact, I looked up an interesting stat with Porzingis. In his last 11 games, in eight of them, he's had at least two threes and at least two blocks. So wow. that's where you see the variety you get out of Porzingis, and he's about 20 points a game overall on the season. So he's there's some very interesting young bigs. And, of course, the Greek freak, there's absolutely no doubt there's never been a guy 6'10 or taller who could dribble and pass like this guy. Yeah. And yeah. I drafted him as a rookie <laughs> by a little fantasy team, and I watched like pretty much every game, and I was just waiting for him to explode because I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And now he is exploding, and it's, it's pretty damn fun to see. And, and the Bucks even have a hidden gem from the 2016 draft on their roster, Thon Maker, who's another freaky, talented, coordinated, big man, true seven-foot in his bare feet, who strokes a nice jump shot. Um, he hit two threes in a game. He got one minute of playing time and hit two threes in Jeez. a minute. Uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, he, he hasn't really gotten in um, any real minutes this season, but it'll be interesting to to see when and if he's unveiled. It might not be till next year, but Milwaukee would be the first team with kind of two freaks on their team. Yeah, I would add to that, too, to that list of, of freakish guys. I mean, you got Anthony Davis, who has to do it all for the Pelicans. He's back to healthy. He's kind of got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, like you guys forgot about me, how dominant he was. The Greek freak, he amazes me more than maybe anybody in the NBA right now because he can practically play point guard, which is just stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And I would add Embiid into there. Joel Embiid, who in a very weak rookie class, looks like he's going he's gonna to be a difference maker, a guy shooting threes at his height, dream shakes, has agility too. So there's a lot of weapons. There's been a lot of guys this year. You can't forget James Harden either. He's in a new system. He's playing point guard, which I think was the the surest of moves, but it was as common sense as it gets. This is a good year. There's a lot of offensive stats. I know you're excited to watch all these numbers be accumulated. No doubt, and I'm glad you mentioned Embiid because as a freaky, talented big, yeah, he looks so smooth and mature for a guy playing in his first year, even though he was drafted, what, three drafts ago. He looks just smooth taking a three and then blocking shots and pulling some boards and post moves that you know really are reminiscent of Akeem somewhat. Uh, I, I just think it's just a crime that it won't let the guy play every game. Yeah, he's wrestling all um, the time. It, it's a crime for his development. It's a crime for the team's development because, I mean, you've got a bunch of young pieces. 
in Philly, you want to figure out who's our core and who are we still rotating around and ready to trade around for a, a better long-term asset. You know, and now Embiid, a couple of games into his NBA career, definitely looks like he's going to be the cornerstone of the franchise. Well, you got to have your cornerstone play with as many different lineups as possible and, and find out what you got and stop cheating the fans. Kids buy a ticket, you know, an eight-year-old kid gets excited. I get to see our hotshot rookie. Oh, no, he's resting tonight. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a trend that I know that me and basically everyone in my league and probably leagues all over and beyond, I think, you know, people are tired of it. They're tired of it. Yeah, I know the Philly fans especially have been through a lot, but he's he's quite the athlete. You can tell he's just still, he's still learning the position, which is scary. He didn't play much organized basketball. You know, a year at Kansas, a couple years before that, he's a, a volleyball player like yourself, and then here he is, coming out and really. Yeah, he, he's a late up. comer to the game, kind of like Akeem was in the um, what early '80s, late '70s is when Akeem came mm-hmm. to it, and then joined the NBA in '84. So yeah, it's a it's a lot of similar parallels there. Yeah. So still talking with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch effect, and now it's time to switch over to tennis. I couldn't let you go, Todd, without. Talking about the men's tour, what's on tap, it was a banner year for the ATP. There's one one dynamic in particular, and that's the number one and number two players in the world. Now Andy Murray is number one. Djokovic is number two. And you followed both these guys their whole career. It was usually the other way around. Murray was always chasing Joker. I want to know about Joker first. He had one of the best starts to a year he's ever had, and that's saying something in 2016, winning both the Australian and the French Open. But Andy Murray made up ground, Joker slipped on and off the court, and now he's number two. What should we expect to see as tennis fans in 2017? Is it the Djokovic that hits the court running, playing amazing tennis, or is it kind of what we saw at the end of 2016 where he's good but not his great usual self? You know, to be honest, and I have always been a huge Djokovic fan, more so than Nadal, Murray, or Federer. Joker's been my guy. And I just wonder if he can recapture what he had. First of all, what he had and, and the stretches that he was on, you know, it's, it's almost un, unseen before it, the, mm-hmm. how hot he gets. And I ran the numbers. I did an ATP um, recap on my website a couple weeks ago, the Speedburner on Sports website. And he had, he's had two runs in his career, the 2011 run from the beginning of the season to the end of the U.S. Open and then his, this latest run, which really started after he lost in the semis of the 2014 U.S. Open and went to the, um, to the end of the French Open in 2016, those 28 months, he won. It's, it's shocking. He's won half of his Masters titles in just those 28 months. Wow. He's won eight of his 12 career slams in just those 28 months. And he's won... 45% of his career titles in that run. And that run only represents about one-fifth of his career. Mm-hmm. And he won ni- almost 95% of his matches during those periods. 207-12 and 12 was his record. And he wins about 79% elsewhere. So you realize that I don't think he's going to recapture that. I just, it's too hard. It, can you be that hungry when you're 29? You know, he was chasing the big guys when he was 22, 23, kind of broke through when he was 23 during that 2011 year when he, when he gained the number one ranking and uh, had that phenomenal nine-month stretch. I don't see that hunger again. There's a lot of extracurricular 
you know, his family life and he's fired Becker. I don't think he's stable right now. And I don't think he's going to be so stable out of the gates. Maybe he finds stability during the year. We'll kind of see. And then as for Andy, you know, what a run. I mean, he finished the season post U.S. Open and Fuego just dominated the fall the way kind of Djokovic had dominated the fall the last couple of years. You know, he gets so, he seems kind of so wound tight and upset on the court. Can he relax enough and keep that number one? I remember um, Paul Anacone saying with Pete, you know, once you gain number one, that's one aspect of it. And then keeping the number one is kind of a whole new beast to tame. And it remains to be seen if Murray can tame that beast, but he's certainly with now three slams and you know, he's got a boatload of Masters himself, I think about 14 Masters titles. So he, he's he's getting his resume, his Hall of Fame resume, pretty pretty nicely polished uh, these last uh, few years. Yeah, and, and I'll start with Murray, too. There's a lot uh, to take in. He's always, as you said, wow and tight. I wonder, the only thing I worry, because he's played great tennis, he looks phenomenal down the stretch. Is he going to be different when he's ch- not chasing something? Can he get himself going? He seems like he's always driven himself by chasing Joker, by chasing before that Federer and Nadal. Now he's at the top of the mountain. How can he, as you said, relax, find motivation to take that number one to new heights? I want to get back to Joker, though, because you brought up an interesting point. He's not the spring chicken at 23. 29 is older by tennis terms. And will he have the focus, the drive to get back to the top now that he knows how exhausting it is? I'm with you. I don't know that he ever can reach that unsustainable level, that historically great level that he got to. That's on par with anybody's run ever. But he's still Novak Djokovic. He keeps himself in great shape. At majors, he's always going to be a very, very dangerous man. And maybe, Todd, that's the next step in his career is being that guy that he might not always be a sure thing to be number one. He could get there again, obviously. But he's the guy that's aiming for the slams and putting all his energy towards that. Yeah, I think um, no matter how it comes out, there's just a lot more question marks heading into the 2017 ATP season than the 2016, where you know a year ago at this time, we expected Joker to continue to crush. We knew that Murray was pretty much clear number two because Fed and Rafa had slipped a bit. It's a little, it's less settled this year for sure. And that there's a lot more questions and a lot more moving parts and variables into the 2017 season, which I think will make it very interesting. I, I can't wait for it to start and see how it plays out. I can't wait either. And you mentioned two of the most popular, most famous names in tennis history, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Todd, 2016 was not good to either of these guys. In 2017, should we expect to see them anywhere near their previous selves, or do you think they're all but finished as elite-level tennis players? I have always had a deep respect for Father Time, and sometimes I've been burned by it, and I think Father Time's going to visit an athlete, and uh, he comes later, and that athlete squeezes out a few more epic uh, you know, years. You know, with tennis and with how physical, I'll start with Nadal, with how physical his game is, you know, certainly Federer, when he was Nadal's age, he was still winning the slam here and there and highly, highly competitive and not taking time off and and kicking some butt. But Nadal, it's just so intense, every point, chasing down every ball. And 
And let's be honest, he doesn't have that smooth, aesthetically beautiful style that uh, Federer and, and maybe even Djokovic kind of has with Djokovic's smooth slides. So I don't think we're going to see it from Nadal. You know, he, didn't, he never made a quarter last year at a yeah. slam. First time in his career that he never made the quarters. Um, well, since like 2004. I know some tennis insiders think he's always a threat at the French. I, I, I don't even think he's, you know, maybe he could squeeze a semi-appearance there with, with the right draw and, you know, just some gutty performances. But um, I, I, and same with and Federer, you're talking about a guy who will turn 36 in August of next year, I, you know, and who had to take half the year off. Federer, I think, will, will have a greater chance of sh- showing little glimpses Little like, oh, that looked like Federer of 2007, you know. I think you'll see little flashback moments from Roger, more so than Rafa, but not consistently. Uh, and again, I don't think, you know, a slam semifinal or a Masters final, will he make either one of those ever again? I, I think you know, flip a coin. It'd yeah, be tough that's... at 35 for sure. And yeah. there's some nice young talent on the tour that's mm-hmm. nipping at all these guys' heels as well. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think Nadal, the style got to him. You, you saw it when he was younger. How long can that last playing at that level? It's like it's almost like Todd, a running back in the NFL that has the more aggressive style. They just don't age as well. Federer, can he get healthy? His, his health, I mean, this was the worst thing that happened to him this year. It was the first time really in his entire career that he missed a long stretch due to injury. If he gets his health back... He's crafty enough to maybe make a run, but he's he's at the stage of his career where he's definitely picking his shots and picking his punches and having to figure out a way to make a run here or there. So it'll be it'll be interesting yeah. to see there. And I want to get your thoughts before I let you go, Todd. Who are some of those young guys that you think could make that next step, the next generation of tennis superstars? Who could be on the cusp of winning a major maybe even this year on the ATP Tour? Yeah, there's a lot of names, and, and I mention them in my ATP recap, and I give little blurbs on all of them. In terms of winning a major, you know, you're talking about Kyrgios, Team, Zverev, and maybe Puy. They would be like the big four of the kind of next gen. They're all ranked inside the top 25. Team's number eight, Kyrgios number 13, really pretty high. I don't know that any of them are quite ready for a major, though. Curios, you got head issues. And, okay. and, oh, yeah. you know, here's a guy who, uh, Nick Curios, the Australian, mercurial talent, really talented player. Everyone kind of agrees. But, uh, you know, the guy ends up being, you know, his season's cut short because he tanked a match so bad that the, the sport just cut a season off from him uh, late this fall. So, you know... The, that's just a matter of does he get his head together? Team, you know, is he physically imposing enough? You know, there's not a lot of little guys taking, you know, slam titles these days. You know, Djokovic is six two and a half feet. Murray's about six three. is a solidly built six one. Same with Nadal, very solid and thick. And so, you know, can team handle the physicality of that? Maybe Pui. Pui rocketed so much up the rankings. He, he started the year off at number 78 last year, ended at right. number 15. To me, he's a classic candidate to plateau. I, I, I don't know that he necessarily goes from 15 to top 10. And I think it's I think it'd be fine and impressive if he could just stay at number 15 and kind of acclimate himself to 
playing the big boys and getting to a couple more slam uh, quarterfinals. He closed his year with two slam quarterfinals at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open. So, um, And then I think that the most interesting, I think, and potentially most talented of those, the big four of the next gen is the youngest and the lowest ranked Zverev, Alexander Zverev, who um, you know, shot up from number 83 to 24 last year, taller than all the other guys, huge serve, but moves nicely for a 6'6", pretty skinny guy. He can move nicely, and he's got a really nice backhand and um, seemed to handle big moments generally pretty well in 2016. You know, he'll turn 20 in April, so he, he's, he's going to be very exciting uh, to watch uh, play out. And then um, you know, there, there's a few other names. Added. What do you think of the big four that I mentioned in terms of kind of their, their, their potential results in 2017? I think if you had to asked me which one was most likely to win a slam, I think maybe team at the French. I think he could play well on clay, and I think he might be able to challenge there. But long-term potential, I'm with you. Zverev is the guy. I think he's got the all-around game in the youth, and I think he can he can really be a factor. I, I would say Kyrgios, but the dude just messed up. I mean, I don't trust him to win big tournaments and have to focus. He said this week he doesn't care about being number one in the world. That tells me literally all I need to know about him. Yeah, because one thing about the greats, and it really doesn't matter what sport it is, if you don't have a deep hunger, there's too many talented guys who are hungry. And you might be so talented that you could still take one of the great prizes of your sport. You know, maybe Nick Kyrgios somewhere in the next five years wins a slam, but, you know, will he consistently be always there in slam semis? And, you know, making finals and adding two or three slams, it really needs a major head readjustment. And he's, you know, his head kind of seems to be it is what it is. I don't know if you're going to find a deep love and a, and a big maturity. You know, maybe he has an Andre Agassi-like transformation. Um, you know, that would be the closest parallel. And I think that's what we would have to hope for. I'm curious. Sure would be. Well, Todd Robinson, Speed Burner, thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect you can catch all of his stuff at Speedbird on sports, all his tennis takes. Todd, thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, good luck this weekend in the fantasy football playoffs. Yeah, I got a tough semi, and Melvin Gordon's hurt, so it's <laughs> going to be a toughie. But, uh, hey, good to talk to you and your audience uh, about two of my favorite sports, and uh, we'll see how my football team can survive. No Melvin Gordon. We will. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Todd, for coming on the show and giving us some of your time. Sure thing, Mitch. Good talking to you. Thanks to Todd Robinson for coming on the show. A reminder that you can find all of his stuff at Speedburner on Sports. Can't believe he's been playing fantasy basketball since 1993. That's legendary stuff. Over 20 years in the game. And he's still going strong. All right, now it's time to talk to Ryan Souls. We're going to get into the Monday night game between the Patriots and the Ravens. Talk about Jeff Fisher's firing and other people are dancing in the streets in Los Angeles, the football fans on the left. And then we'll also break down the top 10 running backs of all time in our first edition of the list segment, the top 10 list segment that I hope to do every so often on this show. We're also going to talk about an album that dropped last week by one J. Cole. You're not going to want to miss his thoughts on that as well. Here's Ryan Souls on the Money Mitch.
All right, now joining the program yet again, Ryan Souls on the line. Ryan, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect on this Tuesday night. Happy to be here, man. Let's talk some sports. This is good. Before we get to the debut of uh, what I hope to be a semi-regular show, segment on this show, rather, we're going to wrap up week 14 in the NFL with the Monday night game first, and that was, Ryan, really a dominant performance. We were waiting all year for that big statement game for the Patriots. Now, they almost let it slip away at the end, but I think for the majority of this game, you could look to New England, you could look to their offense and say, this is that Super Bowl team that we were all expecting. Absolutely, and I think for all phases of the game, but like you said, specifically the offense, and I think the versatility with the offense, the Garrett Blunt having 72 yards and a touchdown, but Tom Brady was uh, the star of the show, as he always is. Only throwing one interception on the three touchdowns, and he's just quiet, making a very uh, good MVP case. He's playing some incredible football. You know, I was waiting for Brady to have a game like this, and I thought he needed a game like this in order to enter the conversation like ser- as a serious frontrunner, given that he missed four games. This right. was that game. This was that game where he said, I'm here, I'm a serious contender. Given that the climate of MVP candidates isn't as strong, I, I think he's got every chance to win this award. Now, the biggest thing that I'm taking away from this, Ryan, too, is that the Patriots... They have weapons that they can compensate for missing Gronkowski, and that's you know that's huge. You know, a lot of teams when their big gun goes down would be in a world of hurt. But with McDaniel's at the at the helm for the offense, and with Belichick able to dial up plays, they don't have to rely on one player. It was Chris Hogan who scored the big touchdown. It was James White out of the backfield. Deion Lewis didn't really do much. He didn't see much from Edelman. Amendola didn't play. Yet they're still able to perform. Malcolm Mitchell as well. I think when Brady is working at his best, he's spreading it out, and you can't really game plan for what you're going to face. Oh, I agree 100%. And, you know, with the exception of that monstrous Randy Moss year, Tom Brady is just at his absolute best when you don't know what's coming, and they're an offense predicated on scheme, guys being in the right spots, and Tom Brady just puts the money on the ball, and he doesn't care what the guy's number is, who he's throwing to. Right, and they did almost let this slip away. I think we should address that. They were up 16 nothing. kind of a weird game, which started with that safety, and then McClellan's play to block Justin Tucker's field goal. That's the first field goal he's missed all year, and it took an unbelievable effort for McClellan to time the jump, not contact the center. They're up 16 nothing, feeling good early. The Ravens get a field goal late in the half, and then suddenly... We saw some vulnerabilities in that New England defense. I still think that that's the one area, Ryan, not being able to get pressure all the time and some holes in the secondary. And I might be nitpicking here, but that's the one area where I think they could have trouble come playoff time. Oh, I agree with you, Mitch, 100%. It makes you wonder some of the the trades and the the cuts that the Patriots have made. They've gotten rid of some, some, I wouldn't say marquee pass rushers, but the pass rushers on their team, they've gotten rid of over the years. You know, you see me throw Vince Wolfork in that mix because although a run stuffer playing the nose, he still did his job to, to get the rush up the field. So it seems like the, the Patriots have tried to build their back end and their linebackers and don't really have a lot up front. And as we've seen in the past, if you can have a pass rusher or somebody that can get to the quarterback consistently, you know, Tom Brady can afford to have a bad game if you, if you got guys that can do that. Do you think New England needs to win out 
to get that home field? Do you think a team like the Chiefs, for one, maybe even the Raiders with three losses only, are going to push them to have to win all three of these games? You know, I think either of those two teams could push them, uh, especially because uh, if you if you go out with the, the Raiders and the Chiefs in the West, the way that division's playing, even gone down to Denver and San Diego, it might be the most competitive division of football right now. So I think both teams, the Raiders and the Chiefs, are going to fight all the way through the end because I think winning the division is huge for either one of those teams, uh, with playoff position and whatnot. So that gives New England, I think, to add an incentive to push because unlike the other sports, the NBA, baseball, and you know, and hockey, even I, th- I think, and you would agree with me, Mitch. Home field is huge in the NFL. Mm-hmm. You get one game; it's not a seven-game series. You get one chance, one Saturday or Sunday, and if you're at home, that's huge. Yeah, I think the Chiefs are very dangerous. I've said time and time again that that's one area where I don't, I don't think Belichick wants to take his Patriots to play at Arrowhead in the AFC Championship game. And look, Denver, next week, Denver's a desperate team just losing to Tennessee, third in their division, no lot right. for the playoffs. That's going to be a big game. That'll tell me a lot about how New England is going forward. If they win that game, I mean, wow, I, you're looking at a team that is clearly the, still the standard bearer, but it will be a tough test against Denver. Quick note on the Ravens, Ryan. They dropped to 7-6. and six. They're still only a game back of the division with one game looming, having already beaten the Steelers. I like the resolve from this team. But it comes down to execution and being prepared. They have to start starting these games better. Oh, absolutely. You can't get down 16 to nothing, especially against a team like New England. But if you go down 16 to nothing on anybody in the NFL, uh, maybe excluding your home team, Mitch, uh, <laughs> okay. you know, you, you, got, you got a chance to come back or really don't have a chance to come back rather. So I think if the Ravens want to make the playoffs, they got to play better. And if they get into the playoffs, they, they have to play better. Right, if they're not going down 60 nothing to teams that are trying flea flickers in their own end zone. Exactly. That might be a problem. You know, some positives from this game. I do like the fight. I think they have a confident team. I think they're going to be battle-tested. And I don't even know what that second wild-card record is going to look like. It could be 10-6, and 9-7. and seven. The division's still in play. And I like Kenneth Dixon as a running back. I think he looked pretty well. I think this could be his backfield going forward. And it's another weapon for that Baltimore offense to use. I agree. I agree 100%. And we've really been looking for this team to establish a running back uh, because the receivers, I mean, Steve Smith is having an incredible year, not filling up the stat sheet, but just at his age having a great year. So I think if, if Joe Flacco is happy with Dixon, uh, he'll continue to get the load. And uh, if this team can correct some of the early mistakes, they could be all right. Still talking with Ryan Souls on the Money Mitch Effect. I want to talk now about the other headline that dominated the sports landscape from an NFL perspective this past Monday. The first coach getting fired. We weren't sure when it would happen, but it happened before the end of the season. The Rams, the LA Rams, after one of the most embarrassing performances on an NFL football field, fired Jeff Fisher. Fisher was 31-45-1 as the Rams head coach Ryan. Five straight Five seasons with the Rams, all of them were losing seasons. As we look at Fisher, as we look at his tenure, I think we can agree that firing him was inevitable. What do you think about the timing of this move? I don't like the timing at all, considering they just gave the man a (laughs) two-year extension less than a week ago. If you're cocky and management, when you offer this man a two-year extension, there's no person in America that could tell me 
that in the back of Stan Kroenke's mind, he wasn't thinking about firing Jeff Fisher. Because yeah. a week later, you don't just on a whim. I mean, it wasn't on a whim. I get it. You said your coach now has the record, Tyra Dan Reeves, for the most losses. And you're having a terrible season, as always. And you threw golf into the fire, probably when the season was already a wash anyway. You could have waited. But we throw all that out of the door because Jeff Fisher, if you look at his track record, look at the actions that Kroenke did, and then look at them firing him, the timing is awful. Not to say that Jeff Fisher didn't need to go, but how this happened just makes no sense. I think the only thing that I can think of is it's a business move, Ryan, and I say that in a sense that you're in this Los Angeles market, and I can say from being out here right now, clearly from being out here right now, people are just tired of him. People yeah. are just tired well, of him. Well, they want him to come for a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, but the product itself, and, I, and I'll include my 0-13 Browns in there, it's tough to watch. They're a terrible football team, and it's a very, very bad product. And, you know, going forward, Ryan, I think the biggest thing with Fisher, like you're going to remember five straight losing seasons. He hasn't had a winning season himself since, I think, 2008. He's just a mediocre coach that never really developed his players, and it looked like this squad just quit on him, quit on him, was uninspired, never able to get through to his top guys. And for me, the nail on the coffin was Todd Gurley, you know, arguably your best player on the team, saying we looked like a middle school offense. I mean, that's a direct shot at the coach and a direct sign that he was fed up with how things were going. Absolutely. And I think it was long overdue. And I'm interested to see what the Rams do move forward because just getting to a new city, you're deep into your first season back and over 20 years and this is how you start this is how you ingrace yourself with the fans and i and i know and you know me and you mitch both have in st louis the second homes mm-hmm. and they got to be laughing and i'm happy for them yeah i, I still think the rams are going to have some issues i think the biggest story in the, of the day might have been that Kroenke actually has a pulse and is maybe ready to hands-on be an owner which right. would be a good sign that that's what needs to change and they might need to clear house I've heard a lot about how intriguing this job is, and, and I believe some of it. It's a big market. It's a chance to start over. I'm not ready to write off golf, but they need to get some talent around him because these receivers are awful, and they need to get a coach and, and an offensive coordinator that's willing to work with him, an offensive well, mind. I think that's the next hire. Well, yeah, that's what I would say, offensive mind. I think even before you get him some receivers, get an offensive mind so they can reliably lean on Todd Gurley because – they were unreliably leaning on Todd Gurley, but there's not a lot of Todd Gurley can do when he can't even get out of the backfield on some occasions. Ryan, the the name that I keep coming to for the coaching hire that would make the most sense? I was going to ask you, who are you going to? I'll tell you who I'm going to. I'm going to a guy that has some experience there as an assistant, a guy that I think spied his time and is ready for a new job and is a realistic choice to get a job. I'm going with Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels. Okay. I, you know what? I did not see that one from you coming at all. And I, and I read some some articles that he was not considering the job, but you know that the coaches talk mm-hmm. always, that he was being considered, so to speak. And the guy that I thought about, well, first, I'll, I'll talk about Josh McDaniels. Okay. I think he would be a great fit. I think it would be awesome to see what he could do, especially offensively uh, with them. Mm-hmm. But I think the guy who I could honestly see coaching them would be Mike Shanahan. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, that might be more realistic, but yeah. Well, I, I just the question I have with Shanahan is: Do we really want to go down that route? I mean, he is. Oh, I agree. I don't want him to be the coach. <laughs> I can just see him being the coach. Well, how about how about Kyle Shanahan then? I mean, how about the next generation of the Shanahan tree? That's true. Who's yeah, doing he... a pretty good job in Atlanta right now, might I add? I... And just to get back to McDaniel's quickly, I think. Look, he's bided his time. Look at a lot of coaches in their first jobs that didn't always go that well, Bill Belichick included. Mm-hmm. He's learning from the best, and I think he could get through to golf. I really do think he can make an offensive system work. And the big thing would be, is he able? Is Crocky going to let him coach? Is the GM going to let him coach? And is McDaniels going to find the right defensive guy that can implement a scheme? And that's really not his area of expertise. Now, I don't know how realistic it is. Probably more realistic than Jim Harbaugh and John Gruden, but mm-hmm. you got to be very specific with this hire. You know, you have a market that wants to wants to start competing. It's been bad for a while, and you have some young offensive pieces that I think need guiding. I couldn't agree with you more. That's something to monitor. Jeff Fisher fired. Rams going in a different direction. Really, really rough season for them at four and nine already. Last question about yeah. the Rams: Do you think they'll play better with Fisher being gone and close out the season? Maybe, maybe slightly. I mean, it's hard to play worse, but this team has major issues at, at certain personnel positions. And the schedule, I mean, I know they have the Seahawks this Thursday after the Seahawks got spanked, so I don't know if we should be expecting a great performance there. That was Fisher's marquee win of the year. I know, right? <laughs> he always found a way to play them, although this is the Thursday night game, so we should be expecting a pretty bad game. Absolutely, it would be terrible. Still talking with Ryan Souls on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now it's time for something I'm really excited for. And I want to do this every you know couple weeks as we see fit, Ryan. We're going to bring in the top 10 list. And we used to do this a lot in college, but we're going to go through our ranking, our ranking uh, minds right now. And this week's topic is NFL running backs all time. So we've decided that this focus feature, we're going to look at who we think are the top 10 running backs of all time are. And have a, have a nice discussion about this. It's not going to get too heated, rest assured, but we're going to go through our lists and rank these all-time greats at a position that is one of the hardest, I think we can agree on, Ryan, is the hardest to rank. There's a lot of good choices that are for consideration for this list. Yeah, there's a lot of good choices, and not every team utilizes their running backs the same. So, especially through the years, obviously your, your primary goal was running the football, but some running backs were great pass catchers. Some running backs were great running routes out of the backfield. Some were great blockers. So I, I think if you choose to factor in all-purpose yards, yards from scrimmage or whatnot, I think that could change some of the discussions. But, you know, I think that's why it's, it's hard to rank because running backs mean a lot to teams and they have meant a lot to teams. Right. And this is completely subjective. However, if you want to do the list, is fine. The only thing I would say is I'm not really factoring in return stats. I'm just, when you're on the field as a running back, how you played. and It's a hard position to grade. It's hard. The position keeps changing. It has changed. It continues to change. So it, it is a challenging list. So, all right, Ryan, I'll let you go right now. I want to hear 10 through 6, and then I'll give my 10 through 6. And any honorable mention you might have. Okay, 10 through 6. So I'm going to give you my honorable mention, also with a disclaimer, that I did not include guys, and I'm sure you can think of one guy that I'm referring to, that are not playing right now. So my list is all players that are not currently in the league. Whoa, okay. uh, with that being said, my honorable mention <laughs> wow. uh, would be Adrian Peterson. I think he definitely makes his list if he retires today. 
but I wanted to be fair to the guys playing because mm-hmm. they can still pad their legacy some more. Okay. With that being said, for 10, I had a tie between Curtis Martin and Gail Sayers. I think Curtis Martin, just the way he lit up uh, the stat sheet kind of quietly, especially being in a, decent, a pretty big market in New York, he had some incredible years, just Mr. Consistent, 1,000, 1,400 yards almost every season. Uh, and then the transition over to Gail Sayers. Uh, Gail Sayers really was the finesse running back in a league of grit and grime and maybe the predecessor, the closest thing we had seen before we got Marcus Allen. Number nine, I would go Marshall Falk. I don't think there's a guy better who was could catch passes and rush the football, had the, the career 1,000 and 1,000 rushing and receiving. Yep. Uh, number eight, I go Earl Campbell. Based on just his production on 14-game seasons, uh, it's incredible to me. Number seven, LaDainian Tomlinson. And then number six, all-time rushing leader Emmett Smith. Oh, okay. Well, there's a lot to digest there. I'll give you my 10 to 6. We can have a little discussion after that. Okay. I did include players that currently play, although it's not that much of a spoiler. There's only really one guy that's still, uh, I would say, in consideration there. So I'll start with my honorable mention. I have two names. It paid me to leave off. Number 12 was Marcus Allen. He definitely is underrated, the longevity factor. Uh-huh. Uh, number 11 was really hard to leave off. Ryan was Earl Campbell. And okay. I left him off because it was a short shelf life. It was really, if you break it down, about six years of dominance, maybe seven. But right. it was tough to, and after that, you know, he only played one more year in the league. And I think that was a lot of his style. But as bruising a runner as there ever was, Earl Campbell. Okay, now for my top ten. Number ten, I have Marshall Falk. I think we were pretty similar there. I, I think he might not have been the best runner if we're just talking about in between the tackles on running plays. He might not crack the top 15. But as a pass catcher, I, I think there's no denying how he changed the position and, and really was able to sustain success, the 2000 NFL MVP. Number nine is Gale Sayers. Uh, I speak volumes about how he meant. I know his shelf life was short as well, but he was a very dynamic player. I think that's what separated him from Earl Campbell is how he was a runner in the open field, could catch passes. I don't really factor in return game to this, but that was also a factor there. Number eight, I went Emmett Smith. I put him at eighth, and, I, and I'm not trying to slight Emmett as much. We can kind of talk about why he was low on the list in a second, but I put him at eight. Number seven, I put LT, LaDainian Tomlinson. His game really translated to all eras. I think he could have had success in any era. He was a between-the-tackles runner. He could catch passes, too, but I think history will forget. The people that aren't, weren't in the era that we were, Ryan, will overlook the fact that he was as bruising as a runner as it came, and he would get those gritty yards. And number six is Adrian Peterson. That's where I put him on this all-time list. If he retired today, if he never played another down, if he never came back this season, I have him at sixth all time. You know, I, I cannot argue with that. Looking at the stats, they are incredible. I'm surprised you had him up that high at six. I think running back is really one of the only positions where uh, you can disagree with me, Mitch, but we place championships really on the low priority as, as we will with quarterbacks and really even receivers. It's so hard to be the best player on the team and carry the team to a Super Bowl by yourself. You just don't see it happen. Yeah, and here's something I also want to say about AP. So right now he's 16th all-time on the rushing list, 11,725 yards. To get to 6th where Jerome Bettis is is a little less than 2,000 yards. So do you think he has 
thousand yard seasons left in him. I mean, given his shape, given how freakish he is, and you can even Absolutely. yeah, I do, and and you could say to get to LT is only really it's only about twenty two yards after that. So he can get to fifth in two, three years max if he has that left in him. That's pretty damn good. And, and I think really it, good. And I think it's very capable for him. I just think this guy's a freak, and I think he was the last of a dying breed. Would you agree with that? The guy that just played the position the way it was supposed to be played. I agree 100%. And, uh, I, you know, what I'll say is, too, is way early, but your boy out of Ohio State might have, uh, he's definitely got some AP spirit in it. Oh, and, and I was going to, well, we can talk about that now. I think he's got a shot to make this list. I know it's a long way away, but he has a chance. It's looking good. He, he might. And AP also, five, just under five yards to carry. just want to point that out. That's mm-hmm. a pretty high high average. Yeah, he's, yeah, I think he's 4.9 exactly. Before we get to top five, Ryan, we talked Emmett Smith. He's in the bottom half of five on both of our lists, still top ten. Uh-huh. People that aren't really familiar with the game or, or big Cowboys fans, I guess, would say, why is he so low? Why do you think we both have him that way? I think, in my perspective, and I'll let you go, I think it has to do with the team around him was so good. We don't put championships at the forefront. And he, he played with the best offensive line probably ever. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and to me... <laughs> What just keeps him out of the top five is the talent that he played around. I think if you look at any of these other guys, maybe with the exception of Marshall Falk, these guys play prolific offense. And I, I don't want to say at all that Smith was a cog in the system because you don't become the all-time NFL leading rusher but becoming a cog in the system. And he's really the all-time leading rusher by a long shot yeah. because his NFL rushing yards equate to how far Kareem is ahead of Carl Malone in all-time NBA points. Right. And because he was able to accumulate 18,000 yards, to me, he just gets left out of the top five. And if somebody put him in the top five, regardless of the offensive line he had, I couldn't argue against it. But, yeah. you know, you and I, Mitch, we like to play the switch em. You mm-hmm. Maybe some of these top five lists will say, if you give any of those guys Emmitt Smith's offensive line, are we looking at a 20,000-yard rusher? I don't know. We can't deny what he did. And to, be, and to me, that's why I got him six. And no disrespect to Emmitt Smith, but I don't know that he was ever really considered the best running back in the league because of another guy on this list. I, I, I'm not sure. We'd have, to, we'd have to really think about that. But, no, he's a great runner. And, uh, yeah, one of the best ever. Not in our oh. top five, though. So still talk with Ryan Souls on the Money Mitch Effect. It's time to count down. We were doing the top ten running backs of all time. Now we're in the top five. And I want to hear five and four because I think we have a holy trinity of running backs equal. But who are your five and four? Five and four. Okay, my five is Eric Dickerson. You know, you, you can we can start with the rookie record. I set the league on fire when he came in. But to have the most yards in the season, the 2,000 yards, and the way, you know, he was a perfect blend of grace and grit. He ran so aggressively, but he could also just lay the wood down if necessary. And then my fourth is uh, none other than the Ford Bronco Buster, O.J. Simpson. All right. Um, (laughs) And, you know, you you look at the numbers that he put up on a 14-game season, I don't think we'll ever see anybody do something in that ratio again or maybe for a long time. So that's my four and five. I, I agree. Those are my four and five as well. I went OJ four, Dickerson five. First, a quick word on Dickerson. I'm never really the biggest fan of his, and I think a lot of that has to do, Ryan, with the fact that he should be probably as high as three or even two on this list in terms uh-huh. of talent. 
You mentioned 1,800 plus as a rookie, the all-time record for a season over 2,100 yards. He was so, so good. He was so, so smooth. And it's a shame because, right, he flamed out of the league. You know, he, he really didn't. You know, he became a, a cancerous problem on a lot of, on both teams, on the Rams and the Colts. Uh-huh. I think he could have racked up a lot more stats. But I can't hate on what he did when he did play. And, he, and that was absolutely dominant from the second he came into the league. For O.J. Simpson, look, let's just get this out of the way. Murder is bad. bad it is. And that is not us saying we're O.J. fanboys, but we're talking as a running back. He's my number four. 2,000 yards, Ryan, in a 14-game season. It's never been done. It's never been done since in 14 games since they made the switch to 16 games. He did it in Buffalo, which, as we all know, is pretty cold. <laughs> it's pretty tough. I know Le'Veon Bell had a good game this, this weekend, but it's tough to always you know, put up running back numbers when it's not the ideal weather conditions. And they had no passing attack. He was the entire offense. I think what he did in, in his era was unprecedented. And as an open field runner, maybe, and I don't know if you would agree, maybe the smoothest stride, the best stride of any running back on this list. He could be. Maybe. I mean, yeah, because Michael Vick's not a running back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> so those are our four and five. We got the Juice at four, and we have Eric Dickerson at five. So it's a big year for O.J. Simpson. A lot of TV shows. And now number four on our list, so a big year for OJ. This is the biggest honor of them all. I think so. This is maybe the most positive light that he'll be showed in this year. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, now it's time for the top three. I'll let you go in order. Three, two, one. Who are the best running backs of all time, in your opinion? I, this is painful for me, and we've had this discussion over the years between the two, three, because we, we both know who number one is. But I got Barry Sanders as my number three, and then, and then Walter. My reasoning is Walter Payton's all-purpose yard is ridiculous, and to only play 13 seasons in the league to accumulate the constant back-to-back thousand yards in a time when you had the most marriage of speed and physical play without all the officiating because we saw guys really starting to take working out seriously and the game was getting a lot faster with much less officiating and Walter took beatings. So I think I got to give Sanders my number three. Uh, I think you put Sanders on any other team. He very well could be arguably number one, but because Sanders had the most yards lost to me, put him just a shade beyond Peyton. And that's nitpicky. Uh, and, and you can't lose with either one of those guys. But I, and maybe you ask me tomorrow, I'll say Peyton's number three. But I, 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 today is very Sanders. And then, obviously, Jim Brown, number one. I, I yes. believe you have your, your list that way. I would say, Ryan, I agree with Jim Brown, number one, obviously. But I'm going Barry, two, Walter, three. You mentioned the all-purpose yards for Walter. And that is ridiculous. And that is... 21,803, third all-time mind, Jerry Rice and Brian Mitchell, Rice receiver, Mitchell returner. The thing about Walter that I always respect, and I'm glad they brought this up in the 30 for 30 about the 85 Bears, you know, that was his swan song. He was on terrible teams racking up all those numbers, where he was the only guy they had, he played through injuries, he was getting beat up, and he still produced. And I'm with you, I'm buried to Walter 3, but I have no problem with people having it the other way around. You know, Walter was was a great guy and a great running back and was electrifying before we even knew really what that term meant as a running back. 
Uh-huh. You know, I go Barry too. I think he was the guy I alluded to earlier where I think a lot of people around the leagues thought Barry was the best running back in football, even as Emmett was winning Super Bowls, because he did it on a limited team. He was the best running back of all time in open field, the best jukes probably ever. Ever. Best mixtape. If you had a running back mixtape ever, it's got to be Barry Sanders. It's got to be Barry. You know, and I think O.J. Simpson's 14-game, 2,000-yard season, the greatest accomplishment ever. What Barry did to get to 2,000 yards in 97 was pretty damn spectacular, too, considering he had two poor games to start the season, again, on a team that didn't really have many weapons and willed his team to the playoffs. I know team success wasn't really there for Barry, but I think any other position, yeah, any other position, if it was a quarterback, we'd be grading him differently. I think he gets more leeway because the team wasn't that good and it's the running back position. But then Jim Brown, number one. I mean, we can talk about him all day. I'm a Cleveland guy, and this guy will be number one until probably for the rest of my lifetime, probably of all time. I think he's the greatest football player of all time. It really uh, is just redundant at this point. But 12,312 yards, Ryan, and he, you know, nine seasons. Nine seasons, nine pro balls, eight-time all-pro, 5.2 yards of carry, over 100 touchdowns. But, yeah, 5.2 yards of carry, Ryan, two runs a first down. That's yep, what I'll remember it for. It's so hard to argue with. And I would ask this, though, because, I mean, we, we can continue to praise Jim Brown and, you know, who, who wouldn't want to do that. But I think a, a juicy question here, is there any combination of stats from taking Adrian Peterson or Ezekiel mm-hmm. Elliott, guys who are still playing, that would put them in that Error maybe even being on the level or right. above. Like, is there is there a formula mm-hmm. that makes somebody better than Jim Brown? I would say sustained health, sustained dominance. You've got to be able to go eight nine years of just being almost the best at your position. So I think AP just missed on that. Maybe Elliott has it because he's right up there now. He would have uh-huh. to stay healthy this long. His yards per carry would have to be high, and he would have to be you know as you said recognized as. You know the game's best for a while. I think the record is the record. Look, it's gonna. You know, it's been passed by guys that we have lower on this list. I think it's dominating your era for a sustained amount of time. We'll do it. And I would also add to that, Ryan. Probably the one. If you had to pick one NFL player in history, you don't want to tackle. I think it's Jim Brown. Oh, I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. We see the old highlights, and as electrifying as Barry's are, I mean, Jim Brown was just throwing people around. Absolutely, you you do not want to tackle him. That's going to wrap up the list, and that was a phenomenal list. I'm, I'm hoping to do this again. Really good to have a nice discussion about one of the all-time lists. Something we hadn't done in a while. It was nice to dust off the cobwebs and bring it back. Ryan, before I let you go on the Money Mitch effect, i got to get your thoughts. You know, we're also hip-hop guys. i got to get your thought on the J. Cole album, For Your Eyes Only. Your initial thoughts, and maybe your thoughts after listening to it a couple times, I'm on the uh, team that I think it was a classic, but what was your thoughts on this album? You know, I, I really can't say enough good about it. I, I think that it was it was an album that really combined solid beats with storytelling, which is the essence of hip-hop. Maybe we're, we sound like a bunch of old guys saying that. <laughs> but the concept of the album, the dedication, you, you got to realize I was dedicating his album to even going down to the title track for your eyes only the the last song who he's talking about who who he's writing to you know it's, it's way too early to call anything a classic but I think this album he talked about for a long time 
it's really close to being the best thing I've heard all year, maybe in the last two years. But and you know, and I'm a, I'm a Cole fan. You know, you're a big Cole fan. I'm a big Kendrick fan. This was this year's to pep a butterfly. I think. Mm-hmm. We've had this discussion, and there's you know, everybody has their favorite rapper, but you know, this is my guy, J. Cole. I mean, that's my favorite, and I liked Pimp Butterfly, and I liked you know, I liked Kendrick Lamar's stuff too. But this, this was to me a beautiful tribute to his family, to his wife, to his daughter, and it was art. You mentioned it, it was storytelling, and it was art. And the more you listen to these albums, the more you pick up on it. I think it, yeah, it's outside the box, it, there's some things that we don't quite understand. But he's pushing his limits. He's getting creative. And again, Ryan, no features. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And listening to it, you never want it one. No, no, you don't. You're like, oh, I wish somebody would get on this. It's like, oh, and you, you know, you think you listen because <laughs> you listen to a song like Neighbors and how the beat goes and how Cole is flowing. It's like, oh, okay, he kind of adopted the JC flow. But he's like, you don't, don't want anybody to no, and I think we can agree. It just sounds so authentic, Ryan. I think that's what I keep coming back to. This is somebody that is is their own person, is their own artist. And it's a time when you know, we look at hip-hop kind of through the same lens of being a little tired of the new era, a little tired of some of the trends and some of the basic styles and raps that we hear. This was great. I mean, we, we needed something like this. I needed something like this to get me reinvigorated and reinterested in hip-hop. So I was a big fan, man, and I'll, I'll leave you with this. Was Neighbors your favorite song on it? Oh, wow. Uh, my buddy asked me the same question. I don't even know if I've got a favorite <laughs> song on it yet. It's tough. I would honestly say I enjoy every song, and, I, and I've listened to this just under 10 times since it came <laughs> out. I, I have a a column on my iTunes that tells me my number of plays. So <laughs> I've got nine, I think seven or eight plays on that yeah. on the album. So I don't know if I have a favorite song yet, but if you're making me pick, it's either Neighbors or For Your Eyes Only. Okay, I like Neighbors. I would. I you know what? Uh, maybe I'm. Maybe it's cliche. Maybe I'm a little corny, but I really like Deja Vu too. I like that also. I think you know it's funny. Did you ever think you'd listen to J. Cole or any rapper that you're a fan of basically sample, somewhat make a sequel to that 90s song, Swing My Way? <laughs> right, But it's right. perfect, and it fits, the, and I like it because it's early enough in the album where he's starting to tell the story about how basically his family started. And mm-hmm. you can tell that it's all so, so real to him, and, and I just, you know, he's deep, and it, it's, it's, why, it's why, honestly, Ryan, it's why I started listening to rap music. It's why I like listening to guys like Andre 3000, J. Cole, Nas back in his day, and, and Kendrick Lamar too, because it makes you think, and it does more than just rap. It paints a picture and tells a story, and I thought that Neighbors and, and you know Immortal, all of them were, were great, and it was just great. He, he put out a classic, in my opinion. I mean, it, it is hard to say right now, but I think history will look very kindly on this album. Absolutely. I think the last two, because I, I think Forest Hills Drive was fantastic also. All right, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate having you. And, well, yeah, we'll have to do this again. If I don't talk to you on these airwaves uh, before, have a good holiday season. Have a Merry Christmas. I'm sure we'll talk, man. But, yeah, happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to the listeners out there. Be safe. If you're up north, stay warm. If you're south, enjoy some warm weather. 
well. Keep on doing that. Yeah, we'll try to stay warm here. It's like a little uh, high 50s, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I want to say to everybody enjoying the warm weather, I can't stay on the airwaves. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I'm just going to sit here in chilly Chicago and be bitter. I hear you, man. But thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect. I appreciate you, buddy. A huge thanks to both Todd Robinson and Ryan Souls, the guests, for coming on today's show. And a reminder that you can find all episodes of The Money Mitch Effect by searching for it at SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. It pops right up, so why not tell a friend that the show's streaming? Thanks again to all the listeners out there for making this show better. It continually evolves because of you. And I'm proud to put out content that I stand by so that you can listen to and take in. Sometimes you disagree, sometimes you agree. That's the beauty of sports. Got one more show planned this week. We're going to do a college bowl preview as well as preview the NFL Sunday and Saturday. They're playing games on Saturday now, so we got to get excited for that as well. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening to the Money Mitch Effect. And until next time, keep watching sports.